terrific as always, and boy, the songs were just fantastic for the series we're about to start. Uh, Lord willing, we will resume the book of Acts in February, but today I want to start a, a mini-series, and I'll start with this this question. What is a Christian supposed to do when the world's falling apart all around him or her? Well, my tendency, honestly, is to panic, pray a little bit, and then resume panicking. But that's not uh, what the Bible teaches us, nor is it really consistent with those who are really communing with Christ. I think we need to see panic as a, as a signal to draw closer to the Lord. And, and so I'm going to try to emphasize for the next several weeks uh, when we're tempted to panic, let's punt panic and pray, plan, and persevere with a perspective that's rooted in faith, in facts about who God is, as opposed to allowing our feelings to drive our uh, behaviors and our reactions. So when the world's falling apart, don't panic. Let panic be a signal to pray plan, persevere with a perspective rooted in what we know about God as opposed to what we're feeling about our circumstances. Um, I think that's uh, something that would glorify God and something we need to think about, uh, especially before the next big one hits you. Uh, you know, we always say that every Christian is either in a crisis or just coming out of a crisis or just about to go into a crisis. And I've always said it's really hard to build a battleship in the middle of a hurricane but to survive and, and continue to be fruitful in some of the hurricanes of life that are going to hit everybody in this room. I mean, we are all terminal. Do you realize that? And short of the rapture, which could happen, uh, and it's our blessed hope, but it's not our blessed presumption. We don't know if it's going to happen in our lifetimes. Uh, we have to have a battleship of the soul. And I think there are certain passages like Psalm 11 or Psalm 73 or Psalm 37 or the whole book of Habakkuk or a book like First Peter that really is designed in part to help Ken Wanzer or Jenny Heath or Brad McCoy have a, a strong enough uh, faith, not in size but in its object, that we can uh, overcome our feelings of doubt and despair and doubt, pout, and drop out that we all kind of wrestle with at times depending on our circumstances and our, our breaking point. So today we're going to look at Psalm 11, which is a, a, just a wonderful a little bit of divine viewpoint tucked away uh, amongst 149 other psalms. And so if you haven't done that yet, please turn with me to Psalm 11 or open it up on your phone or however you're accessing the scripture today. And in this psalm, the writer literally asked Stephanie, if the foundations of your culture are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can one little person do? What can Carol Wanzer do? What can David Bearden do? Uh, what can Bo West do? And in the context in which that's cited, the assumed answer is nothing. There's really nothing you can do that's going to change it. Uh, and yet there's a better answer that this psalm gives us. So I think this is a great place to start. And so let's pray for the teacher that I'll be clear, clearer and less cute today. You know, I think it's a lot better for me to be clear than cute. 
And uh, as always, let's pray for those who protect and serve us so we can enjoy the freedom to assemble and open the scripture here. Uh, our active military, our peace officers, and our firefighters. And um, Joe Franks, if you would, uh, pray for us in that direction, would you? Amen. Uh, before we begin a, a really somber topic, uh, let me show you what something I found on the Internet this week. Uh, a week, W-E-E-K, without God. Sin day. Mourn day. Tears day. Waste day. You know, Paul says, if, if Christ wasn't really resurrected from the dead, I mean, everything we're saying is empty. Without a risen Christ, without an eternity uh, to factor in as we evaluate the pain of the present, we would all have to go nuts. Sin day, mourn day, tears day, waste day, thirst day, fight day, shatter day. we got something better. Uh, let's read Psalm 11. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. A Psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright of heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple, even on the darkest days. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And those allied with ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Ku Klux Klan and the white identity movement. Uh, and the one who loves violence... His, Yahweh's soul, hates much more than you and I do it, even in our righteous indignation. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. The Hebrew literally says, upon the wicked, he will rain bird traps, which is an idiom kind of like it's raining cats and dogs. It just means they're going to get theirs uh, now and in eternity. And look at this, fire and brimstone. Some people say, I never preached fire and brimstone. I just did. That's what the text says right here. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. That's their eternal inheritance, as it were. Because the Lord is righteous. He didn't just come up with social constructs and rules. The rules reflect his character. It's innate. But the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Uh, this passage says there's actually quite a bit we can do when the foundations are broken. And this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, but the psalmist says, and it's David, he says, hey, when the foundations are broken, what can the righteous do? What can believers who are trying to do the right thing do? We can predecide to trust in the Lord, right? We can doubt those who doubt and or deny the Lord, if we can doubt, we can doubt those who doubt. If we doubt God, we can doubt our doubts about God, right? Um, but if you're hanging around a bunch of losers that are in human viewpoint and may not even be believers and they're negative and they're uh, all upset and they're totally feelings driven, they're going to pull you right down uh, to the point of no return maybe. We can doubt those who 
doubt and or deny the Lord, and we can be energized by reflecting on truths about God's person and program that should be near and dear to our hearts. Look at the, the first statement there. The first part of verse 1, uh, the superscription is just as much uh, the psalm as any of the verses. A psalm of David, we know that David actually wrote at least 74 of the 150 psalms because his name's above 74 of them, and he probably wrote more than that. He most certainly wrote the first one and the second one, even though those are not ascribed to him. So he wrote about uh, half of the uh, the Psalter, as the collective book is called. And uh, we know a lot about him, and we also know that because he had so much faith, he never had anything bad happen to him. Isn't that, isn't that the way it works? Yeah, in fact, he had a lot of problems. Uh, I think the the best assumption, although he doesn't tell us like he sometimes does about where he is in his life when he writes this psalm or what he's writing about in what context, but you realize David, during the middle of his reign as the second king of Israel, had one of his sons, Absalom, not just temporarily rebel. A lot of great Christian parents see teenagers temporarily kind of uh, question everything and kind of recalibrate everything and, and before they kind of figure it out. But Absalom doesn't just re- rebel against his dad. He takes over his dad's kingdom. I mean, he he revolts against the king, who's his father. David, embarrassingly and dangerously, just barely gets out of Jerusalem, gets to the other side of the Jordan. And, uh, yeah, the, the whole foundations of law and order temporarily are destroyed in that situation. That's probably the setting in which he's writing this. But the first part of verse 1 says, In the Lord I take refuge. And the Hebrew literally says, In the Lord I have already put my trust. I've predecided to love God and to trust in Him, not just when everything's going my way, not just when I can see how everything's fitting together, but even like now, when I can't, I'll trust Him on that. And even when I'm in great emotional pain, uh, you know, I've, I've had some emotional pain, but I've never had my sons reject me, try to kill me, and take over my huge estate. Okay? They've never tried to do that. For some reason, they haven't been tempted to do that. But, uh, well, that would, that would hurt. I, I can think of a few things that would hurt me more than if Jamie or Jonathan renounced me, renounced their mother, renounced their heritage, renounced their faith. I mean, just put a gun to my head and blow me away. I'd much rather have that happen uh, than that uh, for my boys to reject me like that. And that's what David's dealing with. So he says, in response to uh, the temptation to doubt and to question and quit and run away from responsibilities, uh, and kind of he's going to be enabled to do that by, I think, some well-intentioned friends when they say, hey, just get out of here and get out of harm's way and forget about your responsibilities and the fact you're supposed to be part of the messianic line and just do what's best for you and just kind of leave God kind of out of your plans. Uh, he says, in the Lord, I've already taken refuge. I've already put my trust. That's just a deliberate, persistent perspective. He starts with this day and every day, on dark days, on good days. I like to say I believe on the sun even on cloudy days. And see, Dale, you were right. You know, the sun came out today, you know. Uh, we can see it. Uh, it's fun when you see it. Uh, but he's saying, um, I've already decided to do something. I live my life based on faith. Now, I sometimes give you some really convoluted acronyms. 
And I'm really, to the extent that a, a pastor who's very, very godly can be proud, I'm really proud of this one. K-O-T-A-O-T-L-E-W-T-D-S-T-B-A-E-R-T-K-O-T-A-O-L-T-L. I, I came up with that because it's so easy to remember. You know, uh, now, uh, I think what he's saying is keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even when there seems, when there doesn't seem to be any good reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. I think I got one letter wrong, but uh, that's not too bad. Uh, Twenty-seven. Uh, yeah, I just got that's kind of that's kind of got to be your spiritual baseline. Because you just are never going to have enough information to legitimately second-guess God, even though it's, it's often very tempting to do so, uh, in part because of what I call the mosaic effect. But that's just where he's starting. Now watch this. This is really important. Uh, the, the Old Testament Hebrew text has do, two different words that can be translated Lord, Russell. There's a word Yahweh, and there's a word Adonai. And Adonai is a word that can refer to God as the top authority in the universe, but it can refer to a shepherd as Adonai over the flock, or the king as Adonai over his kingdom, or a boss on the job being the Adonai over his employees, those who work for him and under him. Uh, that's one word. That's not the word used here. Um, this word, Yahweh, is only used for the God of the Bible and only used for the God of the Bible, the real God, the creator of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in a relational sense. Yahweh emphasizes uh, his eternity and his personality. And in most contexts, it should be translated, if you want kind of a paraphrase, as the God of my salvation. It's always believers. It's the, our privilege as believers to refer to him as the eternally existing personal God who saved us. So he's saying, in the God of my salvation, in the God I've trusted to forgive my sins and give me life after I die. That's that's a pretty big thing to trust somebody for, right? Can you trust Halliburton with that? Fat, let me ask you, can you trust Halliburton? Don't answer that. Can you trust the government? And well, I'm, I'm not sure the United States government intends to be corrupt, but any time you've got something that's a huge human structure like that, it's inherently corrupt, it's inherently uh, inefficient. Uh, I mean, why, why do we want more and more government? Uh, somebody recently was saying, in the aftermath of one of the, the hurricane that kind of hit the northeast a couple of years ago, this guy said, I had to drive from Long Island to somewhere else, like within 12 hours, and I saw all of these church and uh, independent, non-government charities out passing out food and water and all this stuff. And I saw the, uh, what, do you, what do you call the federal emergency, FEMA? I saw several FEMA tents set up, but there was nobody there. And there was nobody under those tents doing anything for like six weeks. He said, is it because the FEMA people don't want to help? Of course they want to help, but it takes them six weeks to fill out the paperwork. You know, it's the Methodist... Uh, Baptist groups that fix stuff that show up the day of the problem. They don't, is the government trying to delay help for six weeks? No, but they end up with all these, all this red tape they gotta do. So why in the world we wanna trust the government, uh, for big things in life, much less our eternal life? In the, in the God of my salvation, the God I believe is gonna send a savior to pay for my sins so I can be forgiven and go to heaven when I die, 
I'm actually trusting for now. If you trust him for eternity, it makes sense to trust him in the now. Okay, you've got a problem. You're going to die, and you are estranged from God. And, and I know some of you, and you deserve it. I mean, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But in the God of my salvation, I have put my trust as the deliberate, deliberate per, persistent perspective, the way I look at life. And so now he comes in verse, the middle of verse 1 through 3, and he says to, I think, some advisors who are well-meaning, wanting to get him out of harm's way, how can you say to me, David, just don't just flee across the other side of the Jordan and figure out a way to take back the kingdom. Just go as far east as you can go. Go, go to China and stop when you hit the ocean. You know, let's get as far away as possible and just start over. Uh, how can you say to me, flee as a bird to your mountain? Because, hey, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready on the string uh, to shoot in darkness. And the Hebrew literally says, from ambush at the uprightness of heart. There's very few things that are scarier than being in a situation where you you realize somebody you can't see might come out of nowhere to hurt you. This is why it's scary to kind of walk uh, through dark alleys behind bars at 2.30 in the morning. I'm just telling you. I haven't been there lately, but I'm just telling you, it's kind of scary because there might be a mugger there or something like that. Um, Last night... um, about 11 on the military channel, there was a, a long uh, documentary on snipers. And uh, they were interviewing a guy. He's very famous in the Marine Corps because he was he's the sniper who has the most uh, confirmed kills. And he was fought in the Vietnam War. He had like 150 people he killed, bad guys he killed, that saved hundreds of thousands of Americans. And they assume he, he actually got another 200. But he was just talking about that. And then this uh, army psychiatrist came on and he said, you know what, even today, if we have like a drone or something and it takes out an ISIS leader, uh, that's too bad for ISIS and it kind of bums them out and it hurts them temporarily. But they're thinking, well, they just have better technology than we've got. Eventually we'll get that technology. We'll steal it or something. So no big deal. But when you have a sniper who's a thousand yards away and you can't hear the, the guy's dead, before he could even hear the rifle, and he won't hear the rifle, he's too far away. Uh, he said that has an incredibly staggering psychological impact on these people, who tend to be superstitious anyway. And so, you know, David's not superstitious, but his friends are saying, hey, let's get as far away as possible, forget this thing, maybe start our own religion, or just forget uh, God, because look at all the trouble he got us into, because we got enemies who are trying to snipe at us, who are trying to ambush us, and we'll never know it's coming. And it's in that context, they ask the rhetorical question with the assumed answer, nothing, if the foundations, if you as the legitimate God-designed and uh, anointed king of Israel can't stay on the throne, what good is your faith? I mean, you know, isn't he supposed to make sure this thing happens? Well, yeah, through many tribulations. Uh, did, did David ever... Do anything after absolute rebellion? Yeah, you step back and it all ends up working out, but it's not a pretty picture at times. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do and what's the obvious assumed answer? Nothing, right, Sue? There's nothing they can do. And it's easy to look at around at American culture. Uh, and the older you are, the harder it is to kind of grapple with where we're going. If you're younger, you're kind of used to all this and stuff. But, I mean, we're redefining the most sacred institutions and 
people who ran for president and senate and saying, oh, you know, we, we realize marriage is sacred between man and woman, change their opinion, and the Supreme Court changes the opinion, and then they vilify the people who hold the very positions they held publicly for years when they were running for president. And it was like, strange, how can you do that, you know? And you do think the foundations are destroyed, you know? Evil is declared good, and good is declared... That's that's where we're living. And, you know, as Henry Kissinger once said, Ben, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean I don't have real enemies. we got real enemies out there, which we are not going to attack or bomb. There are no, no Methodist suicide bombers. You don't have to fear the Methodists, you know, or the Presbyterians or the Dallas Seminary Bible Church people. We're going to hopefully fight God's fight God's way. But he's just saying, look, David is saying, I can't buy that. I'm not buying what you're saying. We're going to hear a lot of voices in our psyche and around us to give up, compromise, to change things that can't be changed when we're really in great emotional pain and distress. And all I've got to do is, I know Dale, years ago, he did the right thing. He stopped listening to Rush Limbaugh three hours a day just because not we want to be unaware what's going on, but it's just too much to listen to all day long. And I get real negative if I listen to Rush for, forever. And I don't agree with everything he says, but number one, this is full disclosure, I am slightly to the right of Attila the Hun when it comes to politics. On the other hand, I'm a very kind and generous person as well. And I, I love love your enemies and pray for those who deceitfully use you and stuff like that. So that's the where we are. But yeah, in the depth of emotional pain, you look around at some things and they just don't add up. But then you've got to factor in the eternity factor, which is, and the person in, in work and program of God, which is exactly what he does. Go to verse 4, you know, he, he says, I've predecided to trust him. I'm not going to allow those who doubt or deny to sway me. I know they're out there, but I'm, that's not where I'm going. And then he is energized, and we can be too, by reflecting on God's person and his program, things we should know. I know our feelings are screaming, this isn't fair, this is horrible, I reject this. Of course we should reject it. We're not going to deny evil around us. We're going to deal with it, but we're going to deal with it from a perspective of facts that we know by faith. The Lord is in his holy temple, David, even on your worst day when Absalom almost killed you that morning. The Lord's throne's in heaven. It's even higher than the Supreme Court, you know, the United States Supreme Court. Or, this is going to be... Blasphemous, God's throne is even higher than the United Nations. It is, okay? And, and you know what? He's not just at the wheel. He ain't asleep at the wheel. His eyes behold, his eyelids test, not only aware of, but is evaluating uh, the sons of men, human beings. Yeah, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And bottom line is, the one who loves violence because there's no spiritual life in their souls. His soul, he hates. Upon the wicked, he's going to rain bird traps. He's raining cats and dogs. He will give them a righteous, deserving judgment in the end and forever. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion, their inheritance forever. Because the Lord is righteous. That's not all he is. He's true. He's real. He's triune, he's transcendent, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's just, he's righteous, he's sovereign, he's love, he's immutable, he's veracity, he's eternal. He's a lot of different things, but for sure, he's righteous. 
So he loves righteousness in Mike Palavik. And that means God loves the real righteousness, not just religious religiosity where you kind of jump through hoops and do nice things in front of people. It, we call it good, good works. What's a good, good work? Doing the right thing for the right reason, the right way. Jesus says, beware of praying, fasting, and giving. Beware of practicing your righteousness before people to be seen by them. If you're just performing to impress others with how religious you are, that's not real. That's not reality. Jesus is all about reality before, during, and after uh, life on earth. The Lord is righteous. He loves true righteousness, and that comes out of a relationship with him. Uh, the upright are not going to face fire and brimstone and burning wind. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. The upright, right? Um, Ray Ward, Jack Smith, uh, Billy Graham. Have you heard of that third guy? Uh, David Demerson. Those who are upright through faith alone in Christ alone will behold his face. We can see it now through faith. We're going to see it face to face, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. Now, what can the righteous do? We can predecide to trust in the Lord. We can doubt those who doubt and deny. And we can and should be energized by reflecting on God's person and his program. Let me say this about that. God has an endpoint to history as we know it, as we've known it. This is just a schematic of the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter 1, John's in the church age, and his readers were in the church age there, and we're, I think, toward the end of the church age, okay? Uh, the first major thing in the prophetic part of the book of Revelation, which doesn't start till chapter 4, is we go from earth to heaven with a door open, rapture event, and we spend two chapters in heaven, and I call that the control room. Because before the the dirty, ugly details of the rise and the rule of the Antichrist, it's really important for us to be reminded, Blanche, who's in control. So you go to the control room. And that's kind of what David's saying here. You know, I, I don't like what's happening. It hurts me at so many different levels and it's not right. But I know who's in the control room. And then the book continues, the book of Revelation, and it ends up in chapter 21... And, and look at that. Go to Revelation 21. You know, as you begin the new year, it wouldn't hurt, Sonia, if in addition to memorizing Philippians, <laughs> it's on like Donkey Kong. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Sonia and I have the 2016 Bible Memorization Challenge going. And she said, hey, you know, for a milkshake at Dairy Queen, uh, I challenge you, Pastor Brad, I'm going to memorize Philippians, and you've got to memorize the entire Hebrew Old Testament. And I said, yeah, I can do that. No, she didn't say that. Uh, she said, you used to brag about memorizing t the book of Titus. And I said, yeah, but I've kind of let it go. It's way in the back of my mind. She said, you memorize that. I'll, remember, I'll memorize Philippians, and we'll both be happy. And uh, so she's working on that. But yeah, uh, in addition to memorizing Philippians, Sonia, it wouldn't hurt for everybody in the room, including the pastor, to read the last two chapters of the Bible occasionally. Maybe once a month wouldn't be too much. Maybe once a week would be better. Because, you know what, uh, if God's all good, you'd think he'd want to defeat evil. 
If God was all-powerful, you'd think he could. But it's not defeated. I mean, there are child molesters, and there's terminal diseases, and there's terrorism, and there's all kinds of horrible things. Right, Lori? So, you know, some thinkers would say there can't be an all-good, all-powerful God. I would say, no, you've got a hidden time premise there. Since God's all-good, he wants to defeat evil. Since God's all-powerful, he will. But he's not done with his purposes for history now, where more creatures are making real choices. But when he's done... It's going to be a whole different situation, and that's for all eternity. In Revelation 21 through um, 22, we see where the universe is headed based on God's sovereign purposes. But the thing I wanted to point out is, look at verse 6 of Revelation 21. David Hume was the British skeptic who came up with that uh, syllogism. Uh, he died in 1776, which is interesting. Uh, British, most famous British skeptic of all history dies in 1776 when God brings in the United States of America. But he said, if God's all good, he, uh, he could defeat evils. All, if God uh, is all good, he wanted to defeat evil. If he's all powerful, he would. It hasn't happened, so he can't exist. And we say, no, you got a time limit there. Because he is, it's going to happen, but it just hasn't happened yet, but it's got to be coming. And is there any indication in scripture is going to, it's coming? Well, yeah. Look at verse six. Then he said to me, it is done. I'm done with history. I'm done with permitting evil uh, without promoting it. I'm the alpha, the beginner, and the ender, the beginning and the end. I'll give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Uh, go back to verse 4. When we get there, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Even tears of joy, because our capacity to enjoy joy without crying. I used, when I was a little kid, the first time I went to a wedding uh, and saw ladies crying at a wedding, I kind of asked, Mom, why are they crying? And she said, because they're so happy. And that's the first time I thought you could cry about being happy. And I used to think I'm not sentimental, but I am very sentimental. And I can just look at pictures of Jamie or Jonathan and tear up. I, I mean, I cry at supermarket openings. I'm, it's that bad. Uh or when they open the family dollar store, you know, I'll probably cry at that in Marlowe. Uh, it's just happy, you know. He's going to wipe away every tear and every any reason for tears from our eyes. There'll no longer be any death, no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. We're built for something much better than this broken, messed up world we're living in. And God's going to bring it in His time. Now, when we say that we can trust God now because he's got a plan and it all works out. That doesn't mean he's got the same moral relationship with evil that he has with good. Uh, James says, don't you blame God when you sin. That's your fault. He didn't do that. He didn't sin. He didn't even make you sin. He had a system where you've got the freedom to do the wrong thing, and when you do it, it's on you. God has a non-symmetrical, more relationship with all the good in the universe than he has with all the bad. I'm saying he's got a plan that includes all of it. Everything fits into his program, but he gets the praise for all the good, including any good I actually crank out through his power. So he gets the credit for that, and I get uh, the blame for all my selfishness and sinfulness, and there's still still working that out of our system, right? So... We're looking at some stabilizing truths here about God. First, in uh, verse 4a, 
We're just told he's sovereign. He's in control. He's at the wheel. A lot of times it doesn't look like that, which is why we have verses that tell us it's true, because we walk by faith, not by sight. When you look at Al-Qaeda running rampant and beheading Christians, uh, if there's any other group, religious or ethnic group, that was getting the kind of targeting we're getting, uh, it'd be a big deal. It'd be all over the Western media. Uh, we're always fair game. I mean, evangelical Christians. Uh, not just the Horn of Africa anymore, but throughout a lot of the Middle East. Uh, I, I think I've told you all this story. I'm not making it up. But the first uh, first time I got to teach in Amman, uh, one Thursday night, they met on Thursday night, not Wednesday night. For some reason, we drove into the dark, you know, cauldron of Amman downtown. It's dark, all concrete buildings, about 35 degrees, drizzling, almost sleeting, cold. Go upstairs to this big room. There's no heat. There's about 100 or 200 people sitting there with jackets waiting for the study to start. You know, we're 15 minutes late. Sang a couple of songs with somebody not nearly as good as James leading us in worship, but it was all good. And Arabic, which is kind of a scary language when it's read, is beautiful when it's sung. At least that night it was. And then I had the opportunity to preach with translator. And when it was over, a, a beautiful 35-year-old lady with a little baby uh, walks up to me, and she can speak broken English, and she said, and I'm not making this up, she said, I want you to pray for my father. This is January of 03, and the war started in March of 03. Uh, I want you to pray for my father. And I'm, you know, I'm out of town. I was, of course, yeah, I'll pray for your father. I could tell her heart was broken. I said, yeah, tell me about him. She said, well, he's in, he, he's stuck in Iraq. Now, we're in Jordan next door. He's stuck in Iraq, and, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein's people hate him, and if he doesn't get out, and he's trying to get out, they will kill him. My dad, dad's going to be killed in a horrible way if they catch him. And I said, well, yeah, that's horrible. Of course I'll pray for him. And then she said, but of course, if he gets out of Iraq, he's going to come here to Jordan. If that happens, please pray for me. And I said, yeah. I said, why? Because, see, if he comes here, he will try to kill me. And I said, what? He said, yeah, see, I just became a Christian about six weeks ago, and there's a thing called honor killing, you know, and it's technically illegal, you know. Uh, and Jordan is a wonderful country in a lot of ways, but she, she explained, and then later some of my colleagues said, yeah, it's honor killing. Uh, the dad and the brothers are to either beat up so they can't really walk anymore or kill uh, daughters that do things they don't like, including according to Christianity. And, but she's looking at me in the eye and saying, please pray for my father. I don't want him to die. But if he gets across the line, pray for me. Can you imagine that? That's a kind of a supernatural love. She loves her dad so much, she is concerned about his well-being, but knows if he gets across, he'll probably try to kill her. Amazing stuff. You don't see that in just behavior modification type of religious things. This is reality. And God's in control over everything, including all of that, but he's not to blame for any of the evil aspects of anything. And that's just the way it is. And it's pretty cool when you realize that's true. So he's in the control room. He's at the wheel. And then 4B and 5 say, say he's not asleep at the wheel. He's not just behind the wheel of the universe. He's, he's awake. He knows what's going on. He, it, you know, we have righteous indignation when I see certain things that happen. It just, it, I just, you just cry out. It's just unfair. I hate this. I hate this situation. I hate that. I hate this. And sometimes we kind of get righteously uh, indignant, like God must not care as much as we do because he didn't stop it. He cares even more. You can't compare your 
imperfect righteous indignation with God. He hates it so much he's going to put it permanently out of business when he is done with his big purposes for history. But they continue as of right now. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. He's not unaware of what's going on. He's not going to leave anybody, uh, you know, not, they're not going to get off on a legal technicality apart from the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. The one who loves violence, his soul hates. And apart from salvation. Now, watch, the, the thief on the cross wasn't a thief. He was a terrorist and he'd killed Romans and or Jews who work with the Romans like Matthew, uh, people like that, probably in painful ways. But through the redemption of Christ, even murderers, even people who have been violent can be forgiven. We're talking about unredeemed haters and violent people. Uh, verse 6 tells us that he is going to even all scores, including... Uh, uh, who's this drug lord that's been arrested for the third time? Uh, El... El Chop, Ch- Chapo, Chapo. Okay, not El Guapo. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, I mean, why don't we just put him in Supermax or and put him under Supermax and be done with it? I'm not sure. But people like that who seem to be above the law, right? Uh, and you know, Mexican government's very corrupt. I, I think there are a lot of people trying to do the right thing down there. But upon the wicked, including him, apart from the grace of God through Christ. Uh, he's going to have uh, bird traps on him, raining cats and dogs, the worst type of retribution on him. Fire, brimstone, and burning one will be the portion of his and their cup. And then the last energizing truth about God's person and program that we should reflect on is really the basis for all of this. Bottom line is, even in the unrighteous, horrific kind of things that happen, a child mol- kidnapped, molested, and murdered, and mutilated. What could be possibly worse than that? Those things happen in this world. They happen uh, in our culture, not just somewhere far away. Uh, But even when stuff like that is happening, God is still righteous. His character hasn't changed. He loves righteousness. Uh, uh, Let me me show you what it looks like. You know, uh, we've used the tapestry analogy, and we'll go back to that later this mini-series, but let's call this the mosaic analogy. If I said this is a work of art, you say, yeah, that makes sense, because modern art, they just throw something on a wall and people, you know, pay a million dollars for it. So, But I mean, if I said that's a work of art, you say, no, it's not. It's just a couple of kind of blotches on a PowerPoint slide, right, Ben? You're an artist. That look like a work of art? Yeah, that's a work of art. It really is. But you're only able to see a couple of the pieces, Okay, that's the way life is for us. We at our best, when you're most tempted to doubt God, you're only seeing a couple of pieces, and all those pieces. I, you know, I don't like those colors. That's ugly to me. I don't like it. I get that. But you see that God sees that. That's looking at that with only looking at a couple of pieces, and you can come to if you think that's all it is, or that's all you're going to factor in, because you get so upset or so uh, turned off. That when you see that, you just, I can't connect the dots. There's no way God could put that together. There's no way it could be a work of art. I totally reject it. I'm going to fly like a bird to my mountain and give up all my responsibilities and punt everything that's near and dear. No. You're going to have to realize God sees it like that. Now, guess what? When you get to heaven, I think he gives you special glasses. Okay, I thought, you know... You get old, you get to be a hypochondriac. I was having some weird vision distortions. I didn't really tell even Debbie how bad it was. And so I kind of talked myself into, 
I'm going to get to drive for the last time on Friday to get my eyes finally evaluated uh, and input. And it turns out I've got four relatively minor things. Now, for any of you, any one of these would be beyond what you could handle. But these are four chronic, relatively minor things that added up and looked like it was really a big thing. And so I've got four little minor things like incipient cataracts and my vitreous humor is too viscous and things like that. But so he said, double up on the flaxseed oil. He said, no, we could give you this narcotic and you'd be strung out and a drug addict or you can take flaxseed oil. I said, "Uh, let me think about that. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, uh, I think this is a good analogy because this is all we can see. I mean, even, even if you're aware of 50 factors, God's looking at an almost infinite number of factors and he's saying, trust me, I see that, and when you get to heaven, you're going to get some glasses. These are just temporary. It's like the glasses you get when you go see a 3D movie. You don't wear them for the rest of your life, just in the movie. So, And you get to look back at the most perplexing parts of your life. I'm just assuming as a theologian, God doesn't let you be tortured with those kind of things in heaven. I don't think that happens. Whether you intuitively know, or whether he says, hey, before you enjoy heaven fully, put these glasses on. Oh, yeah, what I thought was a mess was beautiful. Okay, yeah. And two generations later, that happens? Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, see, you couldn't understand all that from down there, right? Okay, thank you, Lord. Yeah, Pastor Brad used to tell us that. That's what you're going to say. He said, yeah, I know that too. Um, we're talking about um, that uh, the wicked are going to get theirs and the righteous will get what they deserve. Hey, nobody deserves salvation. Salvation is by the grace of God to the payment the death of Jesus Christ, it can be yours through faith alone in Him today. But the Scripture teaches that the set of believers will have the fruit of their salvation evaluated by Christ. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 3. And the more fruitful we are, and yet, I don't have the gifts James has. If I wanted to resent something, James is almost omnigifted. He's got all these gifts. You realize he's built two worship bands from the ground up. Can you, did you love, was Zach awesome on the keyboard? And getting with, getting with it, man. That's a, that's a complex technique that kid's got. That was awesome, man. But I mean, James has, James has so many more paints to paint a picture for God than I've got. I've got, and I'm, plus I'm colorblind. So even if I had paints, I couldn't, can't see them, you know? Uh, but you just play the cards you're dealt. You know, I'm not Billy Graham. I don't, I wasn't given those gifts, you know? James could be the new Billy Graham. Don't let him find out or he'll try to leave town again. So just, just, just let you know. But in the same way, there are levels of reward for the way the grace of God has worked in our Christian experience. There will be levels of condemnation. Jesus talks about that. You know, your, your judgment is going to be worse than the Pharisees, man. I mean, boom. Uh, based on that. So some of the most egregious uh, crimes and criminals and child molesters and all that, apart from the grace of God through salvation, they're, they're going to get theirs. So you can rest in that. Uh, big factor in dealing with uh, the problems of now is looking beyond the now to the not yet. I love some of these statements about what we've got to look forward to. Uh, eyes have not seen. Human eyes on earth have not seen anything like how great heaven's going to be. And after you're there for an instant, you go, wow. Ears have not heard. In fact, humans are not able to conceive of the kind of things God prepared for them who love him. It's got to be that way, because it's too messed up now. It's got to be that way, and it is, and we don't even have categories to think about it. Uh, these are verses nobody ever quotes, because in America, we're all supposed to, live to be 90, we're all supposed to live to be 95, 
get full Social Security benefits, which isn't going to happen for most of you, uh, so you'll know. And uh, right, I mean, they'll print the money, but it won't be worth anything. You know, just, in the Lord's presence is fullness of joy. I want to be where you are. Remember that? Good choice of song, James. Uh, thanks for writing that song this week. That was awesome, man. Uh, in his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Therefore, how precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, because death is not extinction, separation of your consciousness, to be with him where there's fullness of joy, right? That's where we designed for heaven, not designed for earth so much. Watch this one. This is talking about after the second coming of Christ during the millennium leading to the eternal state. The Lord your God, what do you know about Lord? The God of your salvation is in your midst. The King is your God. We sing that song a lot when Dale's leading us. The King is your God. That's talking about when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom on earth, he's going to be, the King is going to be our God. He is our God. Lord your God is in your midst after the second advent as a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you. What? He's going to exalt over us? Us? With joy. He will be quiet in his love. That's a figure meaning he won't be able to express his love so he's quiet. Now that's an anthropomorphism, which I just mispronounced. But I know what it means. I can't spell it. But it just means it's a figure of speech. It's almost like God won't be able to speak because he's going to be so happy being around Bo West or Debbie McCoy. And I already know what that feels like, just so you know. Uh, he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Uh, this is one of the hardest verses in the Bible for me to believe. <laughs> the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over Derek McPherson with joy. He'll be quiet in his love for Derek. He'll rejoice over Derek McPherson with shouts of joy. Uh, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He'll exalt over Blanche Britain with joy. He'll be quiet in his love. Uh, it's almost like he can't tell you how much he loves you. But of course he can't. He'll rejoice over... If you're a believer, put your name in the blank and cheer up because it's going to get worse on earth. And it's going to get a whole lot better, right? Uh, Psalm 11 says, look, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The implied answer is not, not much. Psalm 11 says, actually, there's a lot we can do. And it includes things like we can predecide to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. We can doubt those who doubt and deny. And we can and should reflect on and live based on our facts, our faith in the facts about who God is. Let me finish this way. You know, uh, our feelings can trump our faith at times depending on a lot of different situations. And it really seems to make sense at one level because evil and death is all around us. I mean, you go to, uh, I actually used to sell scientific instruments between seminary and, and between dental school and seminary. And I actually sold this big blood testing machine to MD Anderson Hospital. That was the biggest sale I ever had in 18 months as a scientific instrument salesman. I'm not making it up. MD Anderson. You know, we used to live just a couple of miles from MD Anderson. And you walk down those halls to get to that laboratory. I mean, it's it's bad. That was a long time ago. But I mean, all these cancer patients dealing with stuff, uh, it really makes a lot of sense. You can rationalize doubting God because there's a lot of evil and death and bad stuff that happens to good people all day long, every day. But Psalm 11, and I'm going to try in this series to emphasize that our fact, our faith in facts about God and his program should trump our feelings. Uh, and they can and should put our feelings in proper place, our problems and our pain in a proper place. 
Those things are real. We don't deny them, but we deal with them because we've got so much more to look forward to. Uh, let me finish with this. And I'm going to use this all four weeks. We do this mini-series. I think a lot of uh, being successful and fruitful in the ups and downs of life, walking by faith, not by sight, goes back to how we in our inner core answer this question. Am I the Lord's supervisor? Hey, I went to Dallas Seminary. Okay? Am I the Lord's supervisor? Am I qualified to critique God? No. I'm tempted to sometimes, but I ain't. Am I the Lord's supervisor or critic? Are you going to take that role? Or am I just and are you just God's, the Lord's servant and his child? That's that's really telling. And I think that would be something uh, we all should reflect on. Father, help us to take to heart the message of this psalm uh, that you are at the wheel, even in our darkest day, even in the midst of our greatest pain. You're not asleep. You know what's going on. You're going to right all wrongs in ways we can't even conceive of. We don't have the categories to even begin to appreciate all of that. So we take it on faith. But we look at the empty tomb, and we know you've got the power to do all of that and more. Uh, Help us to focus on what we do know. You're righteous. You love righteousness. You love righteousness in your children. Uh, By your grace, help us to doubt our doubts and help us to walk wisely and righteously in your glory, to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.